Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette. Discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free. <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Greetings, listeners, for episode 102. You're listening to Movie Oubliette, the Globe Gallivanting podcast, with me, Dan, using the power of Reddit to retrieve repressed memories in Melbourne, Australia. And me, Conrad, trying and failing to adopt a dog in Cambridge, UK. Oh. In this podcast, we pontificate over genre films, horror, sci-fi, and fantasy because believing we all have special powers to heal a nymph that lives in the communal swimming pool makes us feel better (laughs) about the world. Hello, Godrad. Doesn't it just? (laughs) (laughs) Hello. So how are you using Reddit to retrieve lost memories, Dan? Well... Well, I did mention in the last episode uh, when we discussed Conquest of Space and I was talking about the the only uh, old black and white movies that I have seen. And one of them I mentioned uh, I watched during a movie marathon, uh, this oh, yeah. sort of B-grade movie marathon that I went to. And I couldn't remember yeah. the film, so I went to Reddit, the uh, the Wellington mm. Reddit page, and I asked the, the Reddit... <laughs> Wellington people, what was that movie? And I got an answer. And the movie was Frankenstein Meets the Space Monster, a 1965 <laughs> black and white sci-fi film. So there there you go. When in doubt, just ask the internet. Wow. This was the one with the aliens running around in motorcycle helmets, yes. wasn't it? Yes, it was. <laughs> <laughs> sounds classy. It sounds like the sort of thing that would end up on Mystery Science Theatre. Yeah, I could, I could easily see it on there, yes. Yeah. Wow. It's, it probably is an episode. I'll have a look, actually. Mm, mm. And, and uh, no, no luck with the dog adoption no so my dog passed away uh last month and um i've been thinking maybe we could adopt you know because i don't think i can really put up with a puppy and obviously the better thing to do is to give a home to a dog that needs one Mm. but my goodness the obstacles and the forms and the checks and the I don't know, background checking and house examinations. And it's like, my goodness, I'm I'm not a criminal. I just want to look after a dog. (laughs) So we'll see. See what happens. Hmm. But I've been rejected so far. I'm not good enough. Okay, okay. (laughs) I'm working from home with an enormous garden. I don't know what else they want. (laughs) (laughs) Well, keep us updated, Conrad. Um, (laughs) I will do. (laughs) Anything in the mailbag today? Yes, we heard from our new patron, Ozma, on Black Christmas. She said that she watched Black Christmas yesterday because of our podcast episode with Kelly Maroney, which was episode 42. And uh, even though she's not really a slasher movie person in general, but she said this is a very original movie for the 70s Mm. because the girls in the sorority are not stupid or nasty like in other movies. And they're not just looking for a boyfriend. They have plans and dreams. And the boyfriend doesn't play football, but a piano. And he even destroys it. And the abortion thing was very surprising. Generally in the 70s, the girl in some movies are fragile and emotional. But in that one, the main character is women who know perfectly what they want in life. And it's actually the boyfriend crying on the phone and being irrational. Mm. So there we go. Yeah. She quite enjoyed it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, for one of what what people consider one of the first slasher movies, it's very Mm. forward. (laughs) It is. Yeah. It doesn't fall so into any of those tropes. <laughs> no, it doesn't. And and it's probably maybe one of the reasons why Kelly as an adult likes it, even though it traumatised her as a child. Mm, so, yes. yeah, glad that Ozma could discover it and, and get an entryway into the slasher genre whilst still being entertained. So that's yes, great. Yes, yes. Uh, we posted a uh, fascinating little trivia item about Conquest of Space, showing that one of the models for the spaceship was reused 
as background material for Wrath of Khan mm -hmm. on our socials and asked, what's your favourite reused prop? Kevin from Planet X says, Ken Strickfaden, I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly, kept the props that he built for the original Frankenstein movie, the old oh, black wow. and white one. Okay. And the exact same props were rented out by Mel Brooks for young Frankenstein 40 years later. Oh. He'd preserved them so well that they still worked and it lent a real air of authenticity to the film. Wow. There you go. Oh, okay. Isn't that amazing? I've ne I haven't seen either of those films. <laughs> Mo me neither, isn't that terrible? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really should, mm. really should. Uh, and Eddie Coulter said, my favourite would have to be Sam Raimi's 1973 Oldsmobile Delta 88. His car has appeared in just about all of his films. Oh, wow. I did not know that. Yeah, it's in absolutely every single one of them. So I'm going to see Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness tomorrow. So I am <laughs> going to be looking out to see where the Oldsmobile is. I have heard that Bruce Campbell, which is the other thing that is in all of Sam Raimi's yes, movies, yes. I'm waiting to see where he turns up, but apparently he is in there. So Yeah, I watched it that. last night. Did you? Yeah. Am I, I in watched... for a treat? Uh, it's it, it's an odd movie. Uh, it's it's okay. pretty nonsensical, really, but it is quite Sam Raimi. Uh, so oh, if you know okay. Sam Raimi, it is, it, it is kind of fun. But in terms of plot and characters, it's it's pretty cra it's pretty crazy. <laughs> right. Okay. <Yeah. laughs> I'm just pleased to see that Wanda's back because I loved WandaVision. Mm. So, yeah. There we go. And finally, we heard from Surge of Cold ah. Crash Pictures. Hello, Surge. Hello, Surge. And he says, Conquest of Space is interesting as a historical curiosity with tons of ideas and visual stylings that got picked up and adopted by more famous sci-fi later on. But the movie itself is a lopsided bore with tone-deaf humour and disappointingly <laughs> contrived complications and resolutions. I actually think, quote, do we have an inherent right to exploration, quote, is a really interesting question, but the film reduces it to the ravings of a madman. <laughs> mm. Yeah. I mean, all of those points I completely agree with. Yes. Very succinctly put. I don't know why we bother doing this. We should just let Serge sum it up in three <laughs> sentences. But there we go. But we do love hearing from you all. So please do keep sending those emails and those tweets and so on. Yes. So, Conrad, what will we be discussing on the pod today? Oh, I don't know. Let me just scamper on over to that oubliette and find out. Oh, yes. Oh, it's a swimming pool. Okay. We've got a pool now? Let just, I, apparently. Let me just take off all of my clothes. Uh, right, here we go. Well, Conrad, Conrad's been a while. Taking ages. Oh, oh my goodness! Oh, I got trapped down there and was sucking air out of a glass with a pen. <laughs> oh, what? <laughs> okay, come back now. Okay. Oh, Mister Heep! Oh, right. <laughs> you've left footprints everywhere, Conrad. Sorry about that. So, what do we have today? <laughs> well, we have. Lady in the Water, a 2006 American fantasy psychological thriller film written and directed by the auteur M. Night Shyamalan, starring Paul Giamatti, Bryce Dallas Howard, Bob Balaban, Jeffrey Wright, Sarita Chowdhury, Freddie Rodriguez, Bill Irwin, Jared Harris and the man himself, M. Night Shyamalan. Oh, wow. I wonder if he's going to be the main character. Oh, I wonder. <laughs> <laughs> so what's this movie about? Does it have a twist? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's questionable. Lady in the Water tells the tale of Cleveland Heap, the glum superintendent in a Philadelphia apartment block, who discovers a naked muse stroke mermaid stroke nymph in the swimming pool, who says she is a narf 
named Story. Her quest is to cause a creative awakening within a visionary writer whose book will inspire (laughs) a future president of the United States to bring about massive but alarmingly unspecified social change. All the while, a savage, grass-covered wolf creature called a Scrunt is closing in, determined to kill Story while she's out of her natural habitat. Cleveland soon discovers that Story's story matches an Eastern myth, which is explained to him bit by bit in lengthy scenes featuring a grumpy Korean mother being translated by her exasperated daughter. Thanks to help from a cynical critic called Mr Farber, Cleveland also realises that the assortment of down-and-outs and 'er ne'er-do-wells at his apartment building fit archetypal roles in the bedtime story. Working together, can they confront the scrunt and find a path for the narf so she can leave on the eatlon? <laughs> oh, and there are magical monkeys in the trees called Tatotic or something, but I can't even pronounce that, much less rhyme with it. But anyway, let's find out after the break. <laughs> oh, we're in for a treat. Yes. We are. <laughs> <laughs> And we are back to talk about M. Night Shyamalan's Lady in the Water from 2006. Dan, had you seen this masterpiece before? No, no, I had not seen this masterpiece. Uh, Well, (laughs) (laughs) what's your experience with Shyamalan? Because it's quite the tale of the epic rise and fall of an auteur. It's fascinating to talk about. How many have you seen? So I've pretty much watched all of his early films apart from The Village. Right. Although when I looked at his filmography, I had not heard of Praying with Anger or Wide Awake. No. Which no one seems to talk about, which is 1998 and 1990. Both came out in 1998. Pre-Sixth Sense in 1999, which I always assumed was his debut into the directing world. But yeah, obviously I've seen The Sixth Sense and Unbreakable, I've seen Signs, I haven't seen The Village. And then I started, you know, watching his, yeah, not so great movies, like The (laughs) Happening and The Last Airbender, and I just gave up. So (laughs) after that, I haven't seen, uh, yeah, I hadn't seen Lady in the Water before this, and I haven't seen After Earth, but I heard that's terrible. And it wasn't until <laughs> Split in 2016, which I feel like is his sort of return to form. Mm. Like that movie, in my opinion, is very good. I haven't seen The Visit. So yeah, this is kind of, I guess Lady in the Water is the start of his terrible films that he directed. Well, pretty much. I mean, The Village is seen as a bit of a slide. So that was his fourth film. If you look at Rotten Tomatoes, The Village only gets 43% after Unbreakable and Signs got 70, 74 and The Sixth Sense is 86. Mm. It sort of nosedives after The Village down to 25% for Lady in the Water, 17 for The Happening, 5 for The Last Airbender and 12 for After Earth and then comes back up again. The upswing is The Visit, 68, Split, Mm. 77, but then Glass, 36 and Old, 50 so he's sort of rebounded but sort of going back down Mm, again but yeah we'll see i mean i've seen pretty much all of them except for the last airbender which i just know is a disaster my brother saw it in the cinema it's not good it's it and it's even worse if you've watched the show that avatar uh the last airbender which is exceptional i mean it is very much a kids show especially the first season but after that it develops into this amazing thing with like huge character arcs i've never seen such amazing character arcs and story arcs right. it's, it's actually incredible but it is a kids show right but the adaptation to the film was oh horrible <laughs> horrible <laughs> just Horrendous. Yes. Yeah. I know. I very much enjoyed various dissections of it. I think your movie sucks does a really yes, good dissection it's amazing. of that one. Yeah, he does a good job. Um, I haven't seen The Visit because I've heard that there is something that I just cannot bear to watch on screen. There's a couple of things. One is rape and the other one is white children rapping, mm. which I just cannot mm. put up with. Yeah. So Lady in the Water 
is a supposedly a children's bedtime story, a fantasy fable set in a small location, this apartment block. It's sort of a Spielbergian thing where magical creature comes into the lives of ordinary people and changes their lives for the better. Mm. But unlike Spielberg, which focused on the picket-fenced suburbs, sort of like The Last Starfighter that had trailer trash, this one is people who are um, in a transitionary phase in their life mm. or haven't quite made it. So you have immigrants, you have a bunch of stoners, you have a critic who's starting a new job. Uh, you have a couple of people who seem to have given up on life, including our main character, Cleveland, who has sort of a tragic past that he's running away from or just trying not to think about and live this very mundane life as a way of just getting through things. So that's the general setup. It sounds charming. Mm. Yeah, the premise is on paper. It sounds like the exactly the type of movie I would want to watch. Mm. And the fact the setting is this kind of urban block of flats, this projects, and with a lot of people on the lower end of the income spectrum and quite a diverse cast as Mm. well. You've got a variety of different ethnicities and ages. It sounds like a really great film. Just sort of the execution of that. Like I loved all the fantasy elements of this movie and the fact that it's based on a kid's book that M. Night wrote yeah which has been illustrated by um uh, illustrator called crash mccreary oh wow in the, in the behind the scenes you you look at it it looks like a great book i would want to buy that for like my nephew it sounds like sort of where the wild things are type fantasy storybook and that's great yes but all this other meta stuff that uh, M. Night pounds into this movie, this kind of like, it's a story within a story. And it's it's almost quite similar to like the Princess Bride. You know, you're reading a story, but you're in the story. Or like almost like Never Ending Story as well. Or The Fall, that movie, The Fall, that came out in 2006. Yes. When they're sort of telling a story, but they're in a story. Yeah. That sort of meta stuff. I hated. I, <laughs> I, I found very irritating in this movie. Like it really ripped me out of the magical fantasy parts of the movie. And it was like, oh, stop it. I just want to just let me enjoy the fantasy moments without going on about like, oh, we need to this character and this character and, and I'm this character. And it's like, oh God. Like, I mean, the girl's name is story. I mean, how like obvious can you be? I felt like M. Night was just holding my hand like, all right, so here's a movie and here are some characters and I'm going to tell you exactly what they're going to do before they actually even do it. So it just felt oh, like I just... Just let me watch the movie without telling me what's about to happen. Yeah, and it's hamstrung even by the opening narration. So you get two and a half minutes of narration right at the very beginning with these crudely animated cave drawings. I didn't mind that. That explain the whole mythos behind it. Yeah, I didn't mind it. But there's no discovery. I don't know. There are various different ways of doing this. You either help the audience along by introducing the world and then you have the anticipation of seeing ordinary characters discover this world and be a fish out of water in it or you go on a journey discovery with the character and you find out things as they do Mm. but this movie kind of does both and it feels like i don't know the studio lost confidence and said quick you've got to explain some stuff at the beginning although i really don't know why because it doesn't feel like there is a mythos that is lived in and well thought out it just feels like he's making it up as he goes along yeah because the characters just sort of say okay in this scene we're going to need to do x y and z and then they do x y and z and then they move on to the next one say oh actually there are monkeys too yeah it's like a breathless child making something up as they go along it doesn't feel like there's any logic to it necessarily it just feels like and now there's this problem Uh, we've solved it because i've just explained how we solve it yeah i don't know but it's a bit maddening you did mention that the fact that it didn't have this sort of lived in feeling i i feel like there didn't seem to me enough um sort of establishing characters like a lot of these characters were kind of referred back to it's like we'd only seen that character once before yeah what does that mean for me like it doesn't mean anything mm. all the characters just felt like plot points they didn't feel like actual characters. They were just like, this is the healer and this is the guild. And it's just like the sisters, you didn't see them 
the first time you see them is an opening scene and you forgot about them. The opening shot. So yeah. what uh, didn't mean anything when, when they were yeah. reintroduced as the girl because like, well, I forgot they were in the movie. Yeah. Same for Freddie Rodriguez's character. I was so excited to see because I've just, on your recommendation, <laughs> watched all of Six Feet Under, which yeah. I loved. Yeah. And I'm thinking, great, Freddie's in this. I'd forgotten. This is going to be great. And then he's in two scenes yeah. and his character is ridiculous. Pointless. Just Pointless. insane. Yeah. This idea of a guy who just exercises one side of his body. Now, I looked this up. Apparently, it's physiologically possible, but creates all kinds of health problems. Right. And in any case, if you're exercising one half of your body, the other half does get some exercise anyway. So it would never be mm. quite as extreme as that. I had a friend who was an archer and his drawing arm was bigger and more defined than his other arm, but not, uh. not as ridiculous as that. And mm. visually, mm. it's just so ridiculous, that character, that tonally, I don't know whether it really fits. It's like he's out of a comic book. Yeah, I didn't mind that. It was interesting. It's the sort of thing you would see in the movie, like Big Fish, mm. you know, like based on real people, but like, exaggerated mm. i kind of wanted more of that i wanted more of the characters in this movie because we were very quickly introduced to these people assortment of people and then suddenly story appears like literally the story starts and like you forget <laughs> about the other characters they're just like plot points they're literally exposition mm. where does the story go let's just consult the grandmother that knows everything about this <laughs> folklore that we just believe because why not just believe this <laughs> yeah. crazy shouty asian grandmother about the story and then we'll just believe this folklore and then we have to find characters and there's some more plot points and no point in the movie did i feel like i was watching like real people it just felt like i'm watching a movie unfold with all of these things that a movie should have mm. it wasn't very enjoyable as a viewer like maybe if you were a film student or if you were someone like quite young wanting to know a bit more about screenwriting or, or, or storytelling in film this might be an interesting movie but as a viewer, like, I don't care about screenwriting. I just want to watch a movie that I can immerse myself in. And it yeah. never felt like that at all. It feels like it in a couple of places for me. And that's mainly down to the performances, I think. I think Paul Giamatti, who is not given a lot to work with, makes a lot out of it. And I do sympathise with Cleveland Heap. And also when his backstory is revealed and then later he has that moment of catharsis where he seems to be talking to Story but he's actually talking to his dead family mm. is incredibly affecting but that's because it's Paul Giamatti. Mm. It has a very similar vein to other M. Night movies though like Signs and mm. Unbreakable like this character that has had some horrific tragedy yeah. happen to them and them having to deal with it and that is their story arc yeah it does work it does work i have to say the best part of this movie is bryce dallas howard mm. she is the epitome of some swimming pool nymph <laughs> i believe she is a fairy or an elf or something she doesn't seem of this world she no. is really truly magical in this movie and the whole time I was just screaming, just put some clothes on her. Mm. Why is she constantly naked or just wrapped in the towel or, <laughs> or, or one shirt? I just don't understand. No, me neither. I mean, there is this sense that like Daryl Hannah in Splash, oddly enough, directed by Ron Howard, Bryce oh. Dallas Howard's dad. Right. Um, <laughs> That she has to get into water occasionally just to recharge her batteries. Not because she's a mermaid, but because she comes from the blue world. Some sort of nymphy mermaid, mm. I think. But yeah, that's the only explanation for it. It has to be said she's never sexualized. Yeah. There are people who think that maybe something's going on. Sarita Chowdhury's character... Anna, I think her name is, mm. M. Knight's sister in the movie. She says Mr. Heap's a player because he seems to have this wet, half-naked girl mm. that needs somewhere to stay for the night. She's not sexualized, but yeah, I don't understand why she's naked. I know, she, she isn't sexualized, but you can't divorce yourself from the fact that she is a half-naked and she looks young. Mm. She isn't, though. So she was actually uh, 24, 25 in this movie, which is amazing because she looks 16. 
Yeah. She looks very, very young in this movie. But you, yeah, you can't sort of separate yourself as a viewer from this is creepy. No. You are a middle-aged 40-year-old man with what looks like a 16-year-old naked girl in your house. It just feels icky. And I know they didn't go there ever, and no. he was always very respectful. But it, I don't know. The fact they never gave her clothes just felt wrong for me. It does make her look vulnerable. I'll give them that. Yeah. She is the typical mystical waif that needs to be protected. But uh, yeah, there's no need for it. But you're right. She does look ethereally beautiful and she does convincingly create this otherworldly character. I believed her character. Yeah. She was the most convincing part of this movie. Everyone else just tropes, yeah. complete tropes. The stoner group, the Asian girl that just yells at everyone and has a really bad Asian accent. Mm. I don't know. Just like a lot of tropes. Like I, yeah. I appreciate the diversity of the characters, but yeah, very cliche of their sort of ethnic backgrounds. Yeah. And not in a great way. It's weird <laughs> when you see that from a director that isn't white as well. Mm. It's like, why did you do this, M. Night? You're not even white. No. <laughs> like, <laughs> no. Another thing to talk about, I guess, is the fact that M. Night is in this movie. Oh, yes. In a significant role. Oh, yes. 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 Why not cast yourself in the role of the author that changes the world? Mm hmm. Why not do that? That's a great idea. The arrogance. I know. I mean, there are two <laughs> things we need to talk about in terms of the reaction to this film. One is, it seems an act of supreme ego to cast yourself in the movie mm. when you are not, I'm sorry, not a professional actor in a key role playing somebody who will inspire, well, world change. She never specifies it's for the better. Well, it could yeah. be the fascist downfall of the world that happens as a result of this. We do not know. Yeah. Anyway, he casts himself in that role. Not only that, he finds out during the course of the film that he will die as a result of writing this book and chooses to go ahead anyway. So he's a martyr as mm. well as a massively inspirational creative writer. Mm. And the other factor, of course, is that he has a critic in the film who he wants to portray as being constantly wrong, constantly misinterpreting him. And at one point, the Jeffrey Wright character refers to him as massively arrogant for attempting to know the mind of another human being. Mm. And he then is savaged to death, mauled to death by the scrunt. Yes. As some sort of petty on-screen revenge for the critical reaction to his previous movie, The Village. Yeah. I didn't pick that up, actually. <laughs> and neither of these things went down particularly well with critics. You'll not be surprised to hear. Because his main criticism of critics seems to be in this movie that critics complain about tropes and point them all out and say that everything is unoriginal. And presumably the criticism, how dare somebody be so arrogant as to guess the intentions of another person. I guess he must have read something that Mm. attempted to guess what his intentions were for the village and how he failed to achieve them. But I'm not sure that that was ever the case. I think people were disappointed with the execution, not his intent. Mm. I think we can see what his intent is here. It's noble, it's magical, it's wonderful. Yeah. I don't think he has a bad heart. No. I don't get the sense that he is a massive ego. No. I think he means well. Sometimes he can't quite pull it off and we're all human. But the interesting thing is that I was trying to find an interview where he would engage with the fact that he had this precipitous fall from grace. Mm. I managed to find one where he actually talked about it. Mm. But at no point during it does he ever engage with the idea that it might have been because he wasn't executing very well as an artist. Mm. He refers to the system being against him. Mm. Not that he made bad movies, Yeah, which is a shame. Yeah, I, I think on paper this movie really would work. I would love for someone else to direct this movie. Mm. I think it would be a, a very magical film. Yeah, it's just the execution. Like, they're all parts of this movie are great. Like, it looks great. Yes. The cinematography is wonderful. Like, I, I actually really appreciated the editing. Mm. I don't often even notice editing, but like there are a lot of lingering shots mm. where shots go longer than they should or they don't cut where you expect them to cut. They, they keep going yeah. or things happen off screen or dialogue is off screen. So you see like a lot more of the 
reaction of other characters to off-screen dialogue, which was I thought was really great. It really shows mm. the sort of humanity of these characters. Yeah. But at the same time, he doesn't show enough of the characters, and because they're so tropey and so cliche, like it makes me kind of cringe a little bit. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't really connect with these characters enough to really feel anything. No, apart from Giamatti, I think he manages it just for one scene. But you're right, the execution in terms of the direction, it's very Shyamalan. I remember when I went to see Unbreakable and I had some like teenagers sat behind me and they were really annoyed because Shyamalan does not show the violence. He does not show the action. Mm. He did not show the train crash. He doesn't go for the obvious. He focuses on the people Mm. and he lingers on them and you get to watch them and you get to connect with them. And so it means that for something like The Sixth Sense, when you get to that final scene between the mother and the son in the car, it's emotionally devastating because Mm. it's Tony Collette at the height of her powers. It's Haley Joel Osment at the height of his powers. And it's incredibly moving. And the same for the father and son in Unbreakable. And I actually think the village is the same. You haven't seen it yet, so I will not spoil that in any way. (laughs) I think it's the same. I think it achieves the same things. This does not quite achieve that. It's the same directorial style. Mm. I love that the film opens looking out of a cupboard under a kitchen sink yeah. with Giamatti attempting to kill a bug yeah. with a broom handle or something. Yeah. And it goes on for ages and it's funny and it's odd. And what you don't realise is that you're actually being introduced to the characters that will mean something later on. Yeah, and that you forget about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the direction <laughs> is fine and there are some really great moments in it like... um. One I'll talk about in the Mooblies, but another one where you see the scrunt running alongside Cleveland holding story, running back into the safety. And this thing is running alongside them, getting closer and closer. And you just think, oh, this is Mm. hair raising stuff. This is great. This is a guy that knows how to do this and to do it in a very interesting way. Yes. And the cinematography is gorgeous. It's by Christopher Doyle, who is an Australian Hong Konger Mm. who works a lot with Wong Kar Wai. So, I mean, it looks beautiful. The editing is by Barbara Tulliver. The technical execution of it, Mm. I mean, we'll get to the score. It's just the writing. He just needs somebody to work with him on the writing, I think, sometimes. I mean, going even even the set, it's amazing that they constructed that entire apartment block or block of flats yeah the whole thing it's huge mm. and they made it for the film yeah it's like hitchcock's rear window yeah, yeah and the, the shape of the pool everything is constructed and it does it looks real i couldn't believe it like i mm. couldn't believe seeing the behind the scenes and they constructed it very quickly as well it's astonishing mm. also visual effects the scrunts look amazing because they were actual animatronic grass wolves they were actually there so they look like they're there and they look menacing well and they i'm not sure about that because you watch the behind the scenes and you see all this incredible animatronics work and then when you watch the film i think it's all been replaced are you sh- because i thought that watching the film i thought oh this is cg like i thought they were cg but it then is. watching the behind the scenes They've got all these models and they look amazing. And yeah. there's even some shots with the running, yeah. the, the scrunts running. And it's like, wow, that looks real. Like The fluid motion of it. And it's for a slow motion shot. So they know that it's got to be smooth and it all looks great. And then you watch the movie and it's a bunch of CG and it doesn't look as good. It doesn't look, I think some of the close-ups still look really good. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, some of them. But I was disappointed because all the animatronic work is incredible in this movie. And I think it's another case of the thing that prequel thing movie uh, yes. where alec gillis and tom woodruff at amalgamated dynamics did all of this amazing physical practical effect work for it honoring rob Botine's work on the original mm. and all of it was just slathered over with cg or replaced in time right, right. i've got a horrible feeling the scrunts were replaced right in this because movie. some of the other creatures the the tattoo ticks <laughs> i'm not i'm not everyone seems to pronounce it slightly differently in the movie so i'm not sure how to actually <laughs> pronounce it but the sort of monkey creatures that appear at the end that um start sort of pulling the the scrunts away yeah the animatronics in the behind the scenes they look incredible mm. like a lot of animatronics but also guides in these huge like viney yeah. organic looking like uh body suits they, they look incredible but i do recall in the movie it looked 
like CGI. It, it does. didn't look like actual people. No, I think you're right. I think it's been slathered over with CG. I think right. all the practical stuff is gone. Mm. Gutting. That's a shame. It is a shame. I mean, the scrunts are still... A, I find them a pretty formidable, terrifying presence. And I think it, <sighs> M. Night almost gets the first appearance right. You know, that first jump when it comes through the dog flap. Yeah. And you're not expecting it in that shot. Oh. But then he step prints it to sort of do a little bit of slow motion in it because, I don't know, maybe you didn't see it. And I hated that. Yeah. I, I like the initial shock, the jump scare and the big, like, sound burst. But then there's that weird as, like, 90s shutter framing thing that it looks it, yeah. I thought my DVD had skipped yeah it just kind of like frame by frame almost like it didn't work no and it does the same thing when Bob Balaban's critic character Mr. Farber gets killed it does loads of stupid speed ramping to try and increase the impact of the moment that he gets mauled I hate it because to me it just screams we couldn't execute this well on set so we're fudging it in the edit and I hate it. Right, right, <laughs> With right, a passion. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I did find some a lot of the comedy, the intentional comedy in this movie did work. Yeah. Like I did kind of laugh at, I mean, the, the opening scene in particular. Yeah, and, it's and, funny. Uh, kind of uh, the death of the film critic as well. I mean, although, yeah, we'll, we'll get into that with the movies. But yeah, I think a lot of the comedy does kind of work. But yeah, the writing is the biggest downfall in this movie and, and specifically the characters. Mm. When they were trying to find all the sort of different elements of characters like the, the guild and the healer and the guardian and all that sort of stuff, it just felt meaningless. Yeah, He'd gone to the film critic who he thought would know and then he chose these people, these arbitrary people, and they tried to heal story and it didn't work, so they go, oh, I guess we have to pick some more people. So they pick different people. It's like, I don't even care anymore. You could pick, like, inanimate objects and touch them, and <laughs> I, I would feel the same thing. It just kind of got to a point <laughs> yeah. where it didn't really mean anything. No. If it meant something to the individual characters, if it fulfilled something for them, like the healer ends up being... Mr. Heap himself, who... See, that works because he heals her and heals himself in the process. Yes. That's the thing. If you can do that, mm. then it's meaningful. Mm. But the rest of the characters, it's pointless. And the thing about the critic that a reviewer on Roger Rebert's website pointed out at the time when the film was released, that for all of this critic trashing, Mr. Farber's actually right. If you listen to what he says... Hmm. He's actually right that they are these people that you have not noticed. They've been introduced early on and in an innocuous way, but they will suddenly become important later right, on. Right. Cleveland picks the wrong people. Hmm. So Cleveland's the asshole, not Mr. Farber. Mr. Farber was right all along. Right. And the only reason he gets killed after describing the fact that he won't be killed because it's a family movie is because it isn't. It clearly isn't a family movie. Hmm. It's too scary for a family to watch. Yeah. Yeah. So Farber's right. Mm. Critics right. <laughs> <laughs> now it's time for random trivia. Okay, Dan, what fascinating tidbit of trivia did you find in an upside down glass at the bottom of your swimming pool today? <laughs> oh, I mean that scene was ridiculous. Okay, uh, trivia. <laughs> right. Did you know? I did kind of uh, allude to it a little bit, but um, did you know that both Bryce Dallas Howard and Paul Giamatti? have uh, starred in Spider-Man films. Oh, right. So Bryce Dallas Howard played Gwen Stacy in uh, Spider-Man 3 with Tobey Maguire in 2007, and Paul Giamatti played Rhino uh, in The Amazing Spider-Man <laughs> 2 uh, in 2014. Okay. But yes, they've both been in Spider-Man movies. Not with the same Spider-Man, though. So yeah, Paul Giamatti was with, was with um, Andrew Garfield. Oh, right. um, yeah. Playing a Russian, a Russian like mafia boss. <laughs> right, I have not seen that one. Yeah, it's not good. It's not a good one. Uh, <laughs> but I do really like Andrew Garfield as Spider Man. I thought he was the best part of those mm. those two movies. Um, everything else just her not good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do have another piece of trivia about uh, Lady in the Water. So they they did cast 
um, Cleveland, um, Paul Giamatti as Cleveland, just by seeing him on a po- was it on a poster or a, or an advert for Sideways that he was in that movie Sideways, mm. they just saw that and, and just thought, oh, he's he's gonna be Cleveland, which is yeah, I would I would like that to happen for me. Someone just see me on on the picture of, <laughs> of a poster, like I want this guy. <laughs> yeah, and that's our trivia. That's our trivia. <laughs> Okay, you did mention quickly uh, the score. Oh. It's James Newton Howard, mm. which I didn't realize does like all of his movies. So pretty yeah. much all his movies up until uh, it all went wrong. Yeah, the last Airbender, <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah, he scored every single film. He had yeah. I have a program from when I went to see James Newton Howard conducting live on stage in the Albert Hall. Ooh, one of my favourite concert memories. First time he'd ever done that. And he says here, when I first saw The Sixth Sense, it was in a screening room on the Disney lot. When the ending came, I was speechless. Here was the arrival of a brilliant young writer-director with a style clearly his own. I credit Knight with strongly influencing the style of my writing toward a more minimalist, austere approach. It was Knight who first asked me to compose music before shooting began, based on the script, our conversations and his incredible storyboarding. Knight is a dear friend and we have plans to work together in the future, he says rather coquettishly, although the two of them have not crossed paths since the last airbender, Mm. presumably because he can't afford him. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, he's done some mammoth films, uh, the Hunger Games movies, Dark Knight, Batman Begins, the the new Fantastic Beast movies. Yeah. I mean, he's pretty up there with a the greats of modern composing. He is, yeah. And his music in this is just breathtakingly beautiful. It's everything that the film should be. Yes. It has such an epic scope and sweep and a sense of deep emotional significance to it. I mean, it's a full symphonic work of amazing themes with such weight and resonance to it. I adore it. It's beautiful. This movie has no right to have this score. Like, this score should (laughs) be on another way better movie. Yeah. (laughs) Like, the warmth and sort of the musical themes and the instrumentation, it's magical. In a word, it's magical. A Mm. lot of flute... I know it's cheesy to portray a nymph, but it really works. And you just kind of get carried away in this magical soundtrack of... Oh, it is, it's, it is truly astounding, like, listening to it and not watching the movie. Yeah. <laughs> the movie does not do it justice. No, it doesn't live up to it. So you had... They worked together on this and then on The Happening and then on The Last Airbender, for which... James Newton Howard continued to turn in scores. As I say, working before the film was even shot, they would work together and create themes and so on. And I have this horrible feeling that <laughs> that when he saw the finished film, he probably thought, what the hell? <laughs> I don't know. But all of their collaborations are amazing. The Village, I think, is one that you should definitely check out because right. it focuses again on Bryce Dallas Howard playing the central character, and uh, it features Hilary Hahn as a violinist soloist on the soundtrack playing the musical representation of Bryce Dallas Howard's character. And it's beautiful. Mm. But yeah, <laughs> it does not belong on this movie. It does not belong. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 really interesting seeing... Because I don't really know Bryce Dallas Howard as an actress that much. I've seen her in, yes, the, the new Jurassic Park movies. Yes. Um, and that really, really good uh, episode of Black Mirror... In the world where everything is rated on on social media, oh, uh, and, it, yeah. and she goes to a wedding and just goes crazy, it's a very apt episode for our current time with yes. social media and apps. Yeah, so I do really respect her, but I, don't, I haven't really seen her in much. And it's really interesting that she was in the village, and then Lady in the Water, and then the following year she was in Spider Man Three. Oh, so okay, yeah, interesting career. She was in The Help as well, and and Fifty Fifty, and then the Twilight movies. Yeah, yeah, which I haven't seen any of. So yeah, she's had an interesting <laughs> career trajectory, and and where she is now with the 
Jurassic Park franchise. Yeah, and of course she's become a director now and she's directing episodes of The Mandalorian. Ah, So yes. she's followed in her father's footsteps, Ron Howard, who started out as a child actor on things like Happy Days and ah. and now he's director and we've covered one of his films, Willow, yes. on the pod. So yeah, great to see her directing. She's wonderful in this. But yeah, the rest, I mean, the cast is amazing. You've got Jared Harris in here and he's just credited as goateed smoker or something like that. And this is the man that ended up doing such an amazing job in Chernobyl. Oh, right. I think he's in Morbius as well, isn't he? Oh, okay. Not <laughs> such a great movie. Um, yeah, Bob Balaban, um, who plays a film critic in this film. I, I, I was, he was so familiar. Like, I'd seen him before. And he, of course, I looked him up. And he, he's in all of the Christopher Guest, Eugene Levy movies. So A Mighty Wind and Mascots and Best in Show and Waiting for Guffman. So all those kind of spoof uh, movies poking fun at best in show is the dog show mm. and then a mighty wind is, is poking fun at folk music like harp music it's it's they're very yeah very tongue-in-cheek yeah uh, but very silly and he's in all the wes anderson films too ah right, so right. He, he crops up in a lot of those see i know him originally from close encounters of the third kind oh. And we've seen him in Altered States as well, and he's also in 2010. So Ah. he's had a sort of a sci-fi edge to him too, playing scientists a lot of the time. He's a wonderful, wonderful actor, and I think he does really well with The Critic. I mean, The Critic is funny. Yes, I'm just disappointed with M. Night. He really did not need to be so petty as to murder a critic on Mm, screen. Yeah. And then cast yourself as a genius who inspires (laughs) world change. You're just setting yourself up for a whole world of pain oh, doing those yeah. two things. Really is. Really is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, as for whether M. Night really does have an ego like this, interestingly, I did find out that in 2013, he published a book called I Got Schooled, the unlikely story of how a moonlighting movie maker learned the five keys to closing America's education gap. Okay. So he has published a book where he claims to solve one of the world's problems. Right. So, again, I don't think it's out of badness. Him and his wife run a foundation that gives scholarships to promising inner-city students, and then he did a lot of work with the foundation trying to figure out why these schools are failing compared to other schools and came up with these five things that schools need to do in tandem in order to succeed. Mm. So I honestly don't think he's an egotistical monster. Mm. I think maybe he just makes bad choices sometimes. Yeah, I mean, uh, for me... It don't is, we all? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, yes. Uh, for me, watching the film, and, and especially watching all the, the behind the scenes, it just feels like he's just surrounded by yes men. Mm. He almost needs like someone to say, hang on, no. Don't do that. Just, no, that's not a way. Like, he needs someone just to bounce ideas off and just to not say yes. Mm. Because, yeah, watching the behind the scenes, it feels like, it's like, wow, this movie sounds amazing. It looks amazing. All the cast and crew, there's such a sense of community and camaraderie between everyone and and how he respects, like, the director of photography and the editor and the way that the music was scored before filming even started there were no temp tracks involved like james newton howard just could you know start from scratch and could create all of these musical themes without having to copy something else which yeah happens so much these days mm. and and the fact that the movie's also based on a storybook a kid's storybook that if you look at the illustrations in the book it looks amazing and and the storyboarding on this film as well like really precise and beautiful storyboards were created for this movie. But then you watch the movie and there's just like a huge disconnect to what you've just watched with behind the scenes to the finished product. <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> no, it's disappointing. And, and fundamentally, it's down to writing. And for a film that is a love letter to the importance of great storytelling and how it can change all of our lives and awaken us all to our own potential working together to do amazing things. Yeah. It, it kind of, it's kind of it's ironic. It's ironic, isn't it? Yeah. That the storytelling's <laughs> really shit. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just like a self-fulfilling tragedy. It's just... <laughs> oh, it's terrible. Oh my. Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Moobly Award. 
Hey, hey, it's the Moobly Awards. It's where we present our favourite exposition-spouting parts of the film in a number of watery, <laughs> moist categories. Oh no, it's nothing worse than moist. <laughs> Best quote. My favourite quote is from Vic, the character played by M. Night Shyamalan, when he's talking about what his book is that's going to change the world. And he says, quote, my thoughts on our cultural problems, leaders, and stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm inspired already. I don't know mm. about you, Dan. Oh. <laughs> I am falling at his feet. <laughs> well, I mean, bouncing off your favorite quote. So when Story is trying to explain to Vic that his book is going to be read by a boy that will inspire him to grow up and, and lead this country and be the seeds of change. Uh, and then Vic's sister Anna just exclaims, the cookbook. <laughs> <It's just> like, <laughs> I really love that. It's, and it's great comic timing. It's, it's, it's really, it really works in terms of intentional humor. Yeah. Best hair or costume. Best outfit for me was a young Soon's outfit when she's come back from the club after she's been found out by her mother uh, or grandmother. <laughs> um, and she's wearing what looks like she's straight out of like uh, S Club 7 or a Spice Girls music <laughs> video. It's just like a white jacket with like studs on it and then like a, a white sort of, I don't know what sort of hat that is. And then she's got the shimmery, glittery um, eye makeup and like <laughs> shiny lip gloss. It just... Where, where where are they finding these clothes from the 90s? Like, wasn't this 2006? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's amazing. I do love Young Soon's clothes, um, particularly her flame red tipped mohawk that she has ah, early on in the film yes. when she's first introduced. What I love about it is her hair changes. Yeah. Like at one point, she's got this really serious sort of Rachel cut with this sort of brown hair with with highlights in it. And then the next scene you'll see her and she's got a mohawk with red tips on it. And it's like, I don't know. I just love the fact that she's trying out all of these mm, different identities mm. throughout the whole film. Yeah. It's quite exciting. Yeah. Most naughty moment. We've talked about it before. I think 2000s was the era of high fantasy. I ah, Obviously, you know, yes. following on the back of Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter starting at the tail end of the 90s. You get loads of things like Aragon and Narnia and the Spiderwick Chronicles and the first attempt at the Golden Compass, Stardust, which is a particular favourite of mine. Mm. But also um, quite a few in the noughties were about storytelling and fantasy. So you had Inkheart with Brendan oh, Fraser in yes. 2008. Yes. And Bedtime Stories, same year with Adam Sandler and even Finding Neverland in 2004 with... Johnny Depp is not terribly popular at the moment. Um, and um, Bridge to Terabithia with Josh Hutcherson in 2002, which both of which are very much about using fantasy as escapism from tragedy. Mm. So, yeah, lots wow. of that in the noughties. Yeah, yeah. I also noted that in 2006, Pan's Labyrinth came out as well. Oh, yes. So, yeah, yeah. really all Stone the... Stone Cold Masterpiece. Wow, yeah. A lot better than this movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a tad. <laughs> well, I mean, in terms of noughties for me, yeah, I would say the, the new wave of fantasy noughties and, and also uh, kind of movies being quite sort of meta, I guess. I guess it started with, with Scream uh, in, in the 90s. Yeah. But then, yeah, everything seemed to be quite self-aware. But yeah, in this movie, it just it was just irritating. Just stop being self-aware, please. <laughs> yeah, I just wanna, I just wanna be lost in a magical world. Mm. Favorite scene? Uh, I don't really have a favorite scene. I've got the worst scene. Uh, so when the <laughs> wow. when okay. the film critic encounters the scrunch and gets uh, mauled, I just hated mm. the fact that he points out this is what would happen in a horror movie, and I'm gonna escape. 
Uh, and the door's gonna shut just when the beast is at the door and blah 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 and then he dies anyway and it's just like ugh <laughs> yeah precisely and you can just imagine all of the critics sitting in the preview screening <laughs> watching their avatar being viciously murdered mm. on screen <laughs> just because they dared to point out that the village wasn't great mm. oh dear yeah. not wise it is tedious. Favourite scene for you? I do have a favourite scene. It's the second most affecting scene. I've mentioned Paul Giamatti's catharsis earlier on. But the the moment at the end of the film, I think it's pretty much the last shot almost, where the eagle comes and takes Story away. Mm. And it's shot from just beneath the surface ah, of yes. the water of the pool. So it's obscured by rain. And it's after this this massive build-up from James Newton Howard with the full might of an orchestra and choir, and at the moment that the wings fold around her and lift her off, everything goes except for the choir Mm. holding a chord. And it's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Mm. And I just wish that the rest of the movie had been so good that it would have meant something, but it still chokes me up. I still think, and it's mainly because of James Newton Howard and, and... great choice in terms of direction it looks stunning mm. most cliche moment well oddly enough for fantasy cliche i was going to say giant eagles rescuing people <laughs> <laughs> oh wow because yes. it seems to yeah, happen an happen. awful lot mm. uh lord of the rings is the obvious yes. example which made everybody ask the inevitable question why didn't they do that to start with mm. and then the rescuers down under there is a giant eagle in that apparently ah. i've never seen it and one even shows up in Shyamalan's After Earth. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Yes, which I had forgotten about. But yes, giant eagles. No idea why. (laughs) Okay, okay. Uh, uh, My cliche for this film is uh, when they need to know about the ancient folklore of the, the blue world or the water people, they just ask the grandmother that just knows everything yeah she is the book that they find in the library or the 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 genius person that they find (laughs) that seems to know everything about what they need to know about a some mythical creature best special effect i probably think it is the eagle rescue shot just because it's obscured I do like the scrunts, but I think it's a bit sad because I think they were practical and the practical effects in the making of look astonishing. Mm. And I think they've just been wiped out with CGI, which is a shame because uh, I don't think it's as good, actually, oddly enough. But there we go. So I don't actually have one. Yeah, I would say the scrunts, even though I do think they are CGI in the film, there are some close-ups and um, sort of far away shots I don't think are CGI I think they are no, still maybe. the animatronics um, I quite like the scene even though it did look a little bit janky but the scene with the mirror how you can't see them you see the eyes until you look at look them through a mirror I thought that it was quite terrifying oh, yeah. it really worked um, I'm, I don't know for the most part I think the creature design and what I thought were animatronics did work um, for special effects for the scrunts and they did have the scare factor I was quite you know I was quite terrified by them yeah that's true I mean that's a lot down to the design of Crash McCreary mm. it's quite the celebrated conceptual artist yeah oh 100% favourite sound effect I'm sorry I have nothing in terms of sound yeah. effects yeah right nothing stuck out at me at all how about you uh I've got two. So the scrunts, I thought uh, they kind of amped up the fear of them by sound because they would burst on screen with some huge, like, wolf dog sound. Um, so that was quite jarring in, in, in the sort of best possible way. They, they definitely amplified the sort of terror of them. My second sound, I would say, not really my favourite sound, but it was quite affecting in terms of uh when when cleveland slipped on by the poolside and he hit his head Mm -hmm. on on the the side of the pool or the ground and that sound of his head 
hitting the tiles. Oh. Oh, it's just, oh, you can really feel it. Right. It's, it's just got that impact. It's, uh, it's horrible. <laughs> Most funniest moment. I did really like the cookbook line that I already mentioned, but I there's another scene, another intentional humor scene uh, when Cleveland is trying to get information from the grandmother, but the grandmother can't speak English, so she calls up Young Soon, and she's at the club, and so she's trying to translate, and then the phone gets handed back to Cleveland, and then. He gets a lowdown on on scrunts and naffs and all that sort of uh, folklore, and then he asks a question, and then he she says, "Oh, hand me back to my grandmother." And so he kind of sighs, like, <sighs> and he hands the phone back, and it's just <laughs> and an ensuing uh, argument and erupts, and it's it's yeah, it's just really nice, clever. Uh, well-timed humor that that really worked yeah yeah uh, funny scene for you that's actually one of my favorite um sources of amusement as well and my favorite one is the one where young soon is actually in the room with her mother but her mother i think is cooking i don't think she wants to be there and you just have this wonderful moment where it's a standard shot reverse shot of paul giamatti asking questions and you cut back to the daughter and the mother but at one occasion you cut back and the daughter just sort of turns to her right expecting her mother to still be there and she's gone. Yeah, <laughs> The framing right. is the same, but she's just, mother has left the scene. She just does not want to be in this exchange. And it's such a surprise because you don't get a shot of Paul Giamatti tracking, uh, you know, with his eyes as she leaves the room. So you're not expecting that she's just gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was it the grandmother or was it the mother? I thought it was the grandmother. I think it's, um, I think she's a mother, isn't she? Oh, right. Okay. I see, I've seen grandmother through the entire podcast. <laughs> so. Quite possibly. She could be. She could be. I don't know. It's in there now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally wrong. Okay. Well, yeah. that's our boo, please. It is. Hi, everybody. I'm Heather Wixon, the managing editor for DailyDead.com and contributor to Fangoria. And you are listening to Movie Oubliette. Okay, it is final verdict time. Should M. Night Shyamalan's Lady in the Water be freed from the unknown by a giant eagle to be praised by all, or should it be mauled by a scrunt and be drowned <laughs> deep within the oubliette, never to be spoken of again? <laughs> Conrad, final oh. verdict. Well, I'd seen this movie before. I do have a soft spot for it mainly because I want to believe in the fantasy because I think all of the technical aspects of it, it are great it looks beautiful the production design is amazing the cast is great Paul Giamatti and Bryce Dallas Howard are so affecting in their central roles especially Paul Giamatti's key scene where he's apologizing to his dead family for not being there for them I think the theme is great I, I, the score is incredible, but the execution and the storytelling for a film that's supposed to be about the wonders of storytelling are just a fatally, fatally flawed. Mm. And unfortunately, although I will admit this, I will occasionally enjoy watching this movie, I, I couldn't in all good conscience recommend it or force anybody else to watch it, although mm. I kind of recognise that I've done it to you, but that's the whole theme of the podcast. Wow, yeah. But, yeah, in revisiting it, it is a clear step down from even the village, and it points directly towards where we were headed with the, the happening. And, no, I'm sorry, I think mm. it, it's on the tipping point. I think we'll have to watch it at some point. I think the village would stay. I think the, the lady in the water goes in, I'm afraid. I, I'd throw it back in. Mm. Yeah, I, I don't think I've ever been as irritated by a movie <laughs> before. Like, I've enjoyed bad movies, and I and I can enjoy bad acting and, and terrible effects, but this is all of those things. It's, it, all the elements of this movie are good. Acting, everything. Mm. But yeah, the execution and story just 
does there's such a disconnect like i like i said between the actual production and crew and cast and the actual final product blows my mind I, i'm just baffled by how it ended up being like this like just too many yes mm. men around M Night Shyamalan just and and the the score is great Bryce Dallas Howard is phenomenal in this movie like it's one of the mm. the most uh breathtaking performances i've ever seen her do on screen like i would rather watch her portray story than watch any of the Jurassic Park movies that she's in <laughs> recently those movies are terrible uh but yeah <laughs> uh, this movie is, is just not great it's it's not for anyone that likes movies it would it would make you want to to shout at the screen which i was doing yeah. and um yeah it's it, i'm i'm yeah i'm baffled i'm baffled by all the elements that all the great elements of this movie coming together to produce a, a, a turd and it's it's yeah i <laughs> I'm shocked. I'm shocked. I, I'm still glad that I've finally watched this movie, though, because it, I think it. Yeah, I've been yeah. wanting to watch it for a while. And compared to compared to the happening in the last Airbender, it is definitely better, but it's not great. Yes, it's not great. No, it's not. It's part of a slow, inexorable decline <laughs> until Split. And the visit, mm. so yeah. Okay, well, I just, I'll just let this scrunt off the leash. There you go. Have at it. <laughs> oh, brutal. And go back down there. Well, if you would like to tell us how you would fix this movie, then please reach out to us on any of our social media channels. We are Movie Oubliette everywhere: Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and even Reddit these days. Mm-hmm. And you can email us at uh, movie dot at gmail.com and you if you want to support us some more you can become a patron on patreon uh, for as little as a dollar a month you get access to extended segments and for five dollars you get access to extended interviews with our guests and of course our monthly minisode in video form mm. Yes, indeed. And if you'd like some merchandise with our logo on it, then head on over to Redbubble, where you can get it on a variety of unlikely things. And also T-shirts, which, let's face it, that's what everybody wants. They just want a shirt. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you can also get us on the latest Iconicon shirt. The Iconicon 2022 design is out now. So you can head on over to Redbubble and look for that under the uh, retro-blasting Redbubble shop. Yeah. Yeah, and and try to figure out what characters we are from what movies. Mm, yes, we are both characters from eighties movies that we have covered on this pod. Yeah, my mine was a bit of a last minute uh, choice, <laughs> so it's a, it's a very recent movie that we've covered. <laughs> yeah, it's a good one though. You look good. Yeah, yeah. I, oh, I I look better than I actually look. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Conrad, so the question is, what will we be covering next episode? Well, we will be going back to the 80s and we will be going back to horror. We will be watching the 1989 American slasher Wes Craven movie, Shocker. Oh, okay. I uh, still haven't seen enough Wes Craven and I haven't seen this film. Right. So it'll be a journey of discovery for you. And for our guest, it will be a journey of um, watching a film that they loved in the 90s mm. when they were a teenager, but they haven't revisited it since. So that should be fascinating. Yeah, I love doing that. It's a, yes. <laughs> it's a different experience from a sort of more mature standpoint. It is for sure. I saw it on video in uh, the early 90s, I think. So, but I haven't watched it since then. So, yeah. Yeah. Should be fun. Yeah. And I recently acquired it at a, a trash and treasure market <laughs> that I went to recently. <laughs> so, not that that influenced our choice at all. No, 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 no. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Can't wait for that. Until next time, listeners. Goodbye. Toodle pip. <laughs> Baby, 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 baby,
with us and don't know nothing movie only yet. She won't tell me more. She say, why couldn't I be more like my older sister? She married a dentist.